Hello and welcome to the Scary Youth Podcast, a podcast where we hold conversations about creating a healthy planet for healthy communities. We're here to learn about all things related to intersectional environmental justice from the perspective of youth. Our hosts are Brenna, Jackie, Emily, Jessica, and me, Michaela. Today, I'm so excited to be welcoming Janelle LaPointe to the podcast. Janelle is an Afro-Indigenous climate justice and Indigenous rights activist from Stellatam First Nation, currently working in communications for the David Suzuki Foundation as a guest on the lands of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam peoples. I first came across Janelle on Twitter, and I remember being immediately drawn into her account because of her Twitter bio. Along with identifying as a climate justice and Indigenous rights activist, Janelle also identifies as a fungi fanatic, long-haired, free-thinking bastard, and a big-time nerd. I love it. Beyond her fungi photos and luscious locks are her words. Powerful, eloquent, and piercing. One of Janelle's tweets reads, Draining lakes, damming rivers, building pipelines underneath the last of our sacred waterways. Bold of colonizers to think they can manipulate mother's natural systems. And another one from November 21st reads, The dissonance between wearing an orange shirt and defending militarized RCMP raiding unceded Wissowatan territory to make way for a pipeline because it's the law. Do not understand that Canadian laws are contingent on Indigenous genocide, displacement, and suffering? End tweet. This question at the end of her tweet touches on what we're going to be chatting about today. But before we do that, I just want to say welcome, Janelle. Thank you so much for being here and chatting with us today. Do you want to share a little bit more about yourself with our listeners? Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction. I'm really excited. This is my first ever podcast interview, and it's really excited to to get to animate um, some of my tweets and my online words with my voice. So yeah, my name is Janelle. I am from Salatan First Nation. I am Caribou Clan. As protocol, I want to introduce um, that I am the granddaughter of Emma Baker, who is a Dakath elder here in Salatan, and the granddaughter of the late Willie Baker, who was a Black and Choctaw man from Hobbs, New Mexico. I usually work and live on unceded coastal territories, so territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. But today I am at home. I'm in my childhood bedroom on unceded Dakath territory where I'll be spending the next few weeks resting and visiting family. Awesome. I'm sure you're so happy to be home surrounded by family. It's wonderful. I know I'm going to be going home soon and I'll be super excited to hug my sisters and my parents. So thank you so much for introducing yourself. And as I said, we're so excited to have you. Um, so let's jump right in. Thinking back to our first conversation together, something you said that really stuck out to me was you telling me about your journey to becoming and identifying as a climate and Indigenous rights activist. You said it was not part of your plan, so to speak. You didn't think that the type of activism that you do now was going to be a part of your journey or your career. Can you share with us about how you came to be the activist that you are today? Yeah, totally. It was it was definitely by accident. It was definitely not in the plans. In fact, I wasn't really sure what my plans were going to be for my career. All I know is that I was a very curious kid who was lucky enough to grow up on her traditional homelands. I was homeschooled in my early years of education, so um, from preschool all the way to second grade. Um, 
which were really formative years in my life. I spent a lot of time outside, um, a lot of time entertaining myself while my mom was busy caring for my my baby sister or, or chasing after my rebellious teenage older brother. So I got to grow up playing in the forest, playing in lakes, playing in rivers. And in fact, when I started public school, I remember doing a class presentation on favorite animals. And so here I am, eight years old, I'm standing in front of my class and most of my classmates that went before me were sharing about their favorite animals, whether it be a dog or a cat or maybe an elephant or a tiger. And little eight-year-old Janelle was up there presenting on sockeye salmon. And I was so, so excited about the life cycle of salmon. And that's really just because I got to grow up on the river and connected to that. And so unfortunately, being someone who was very quiet, curious, observant, it meant that I was um, building strong relationships with nature, but I was also noticing nature changing around me. So I spent up until 17, eight years old on my homelands. And as I got to the older years, I was realizing that the salmon runs weren't the same as when I was a kid. I was noticing that there was a lot of industrial activity in my area. We were predominantly relying on mining activity or sawmill activity for economic opportunities for our people, which were, of course, foreign to our cultural way of life. I grew up without clean drinking water that was due to the, the runoff from the local mine. I grew up along the highway of tears where Indigenous women and girls go disproportionately missing. So here I was absorbing all these things, um, but I didn't really have the language to connect it uh, or to talk about it. Um, I knew about global warming at the time and um, was thinking it in a foreign sense, you know, like melting icebergs and stranded polar bears. So it wasn't really sure how it was related to what was happening in my home territory. I kind of just internalized all of that. Um, I was following kind of a traditional Western career path, which was I was leaving home. I was going to start university. I was going to build some career, but climbing a corporate ladder. Um, but I noticed when I was away from my community that I had so much despair. I would catch myself watching a commercial about plastics in the ocean, and it would just turn me into a hysterical crying mess. Um, I remember watching some, some documentaries on Netflix that were related to climate change and just feeling such deep, deep despair. And then it wasn't until my later years in university that I had begun hearing about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I knew that it was proposed to go under uh, the Sequamic and Tecumseh territory where the university was situated on. And I knew that there was some indigenous people that opposed the project, but didn't really know much more than that. But I was at a university gala um, where scholarships and awards were being presented and an elder sat on stage to do the land acknowledgement. And she did the most beautiful opening prayer and she was describing the connection to, to lands and animals and waters. And instantly I was brought back to my childhood of, of being connected and getting to enjoy nature. And she was talking about our responsibility 
as guests on that land, as people that attended the university. And it was beginning to, to churn in my mind what, what it all meant. And I was drawing those lines from, from childhood that I internalized. And she finished the prayer. I opened my eyes and I saw this little elder being ushered off stage by men in suits. And what followed was um, people from the university holding a $500,000 check from, at the time, Kinder Morgan, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And that made it click for me. I was watching an elder physically be removed to make way for a check and thought that was so symbolic of the way Indigenous peoples are removed and displaced to make way for resource extraction. I had realized that people didn't really care about connecting to the lands and waterways like the elder was describing or like how I had experienced. And so that prompted me to learn more about the local fight against Trans Mountain and what it meant for the university to be accepting such a large donation on behalf of the university. And then in a way, buying the consent, consent of the students who didn't really understand the, the pipeline struggle either. So that's a, a long story um, that really just meant that I had a deep feeling that things were wrong, that our systems were not meant for me as an Indigenous person to thrive and survive, um, that my experience being connected to the land was not a common one, and um, that, yeah, that there was Indigenous people who were rooted in culture and identity that were using that as a shield from extractive activity. And once I knew that, there was no way I could stop being involved and stop learning about it. So that just evolved in me learning what it meant to be an ally as an Indigenous person not from those territories and what it meant to work in connection, um, how stopping projects outside of my territory actually benefits my territory as it's located along the headwaters. And it just kind of led to a series of experience that followed that just led to me becoming more and more deeply rooted in the work I do. And so in some some way, I just ended up <laughs> this consuming my entire life and building a career and a platform related to climate change and Indigenous rights. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that all with us. I was so excited to um, get to talk to you today, mostly because I've been following you on Twitter for a while and I've, you know, your tweets explain part of you, but not all of you. And so like actually having the opportunity to get to like hear more about your story is just like so special. So thank you so much for, for sharing with us. And I'm so excited for our listeners to hear this. Um, I'd love to hear from you why challenging the traditional path um, within the environmental space is so important to you and why sharing your experience um, about challenging that path um, is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like you said that, you know, my tweets represent a part of me and not all of me. The story I just told is also a part of me and not all of me. Um, in high school, I was a jock. I, my biggest focus was sports. When I went to university, I was interested in event management and thought I was going to be a corporate event planner. Um, There's so many other aspects of my life um, that have made me a person. And yeah, now I have um, a career 
uh, at an environmental nonprofit. And I have a platform that mostly talks about indigenous rights and climate action. But just like my bio says, like, I think I'm like a big time nerd. I love playing video games. I love like a, an ideal day for me is like being out in the forest, looking at mushrooms and really all I am is just like one, one ordinary person, I guess. And the word activist has so many connotations to it, some positive, some negative, depending on what circle you're in. And it really gives, um, almost a subculture vibe where being in an activist circle is being almost in a little clubhouse. And what we really need is to reach everyday people and to find what their why is for um, engaging in climate work. And it doesn't take someone pursuing an academic career in uh, environmentalism. It doesn't take someone that's brave enough to speak up on social media or in person or at rallies. I think every person can relate to the feeling that our current systems are wrong. I think now more than ever, people are looking at the effects of, of climate change and they're feeling scared. And so why I challenge that traditional path is because I deeply believe that everyone in so-called Canada understands to some degree that something's wrong. Um, I believe that everyone has a responsibility to the lands they're on, both to the land itself and to the Indigenous people who have stewarded the land. And also believe that all people have the ability to build and hold and wield political power. And so I like to tell that story about my connection to nature and path to activism. But I also just want people to know that like it was by accident it wasn't intentional and that you don't need to, to plan a path and that you can there's a starting point for everyone to engage in and and start wielding their power as a person that exists in this context absolutely i 100 percent agree with everything that you said and just if i can just add one thing i i think i would also say that like it's never too late as well too like if you're listening to this podcast right now and as we get more into the conversation you feel inspired to to do something about the things that we're about to chat about you know it's never too late to get involved it's never too late to educate yourself it's never too late to to start taking action big or small it, it's just as it's still important so i wanted to add also um really quickly that um you know when we try to like um, derive a path, a traditional path for activism. It also um, only makes space for people that have significant time or resources to contribute to the work full time. And so traditionally in the context um, of the Canadian environmental movement, that means that it's mostly upper middle class white folks that traditionally have the time um, to contribute, or it's putting a lot of labor on Black, Indigenous, and people of color that um, carry so much weight in other aspects and is leading to quick burnout. So um, it's important that every people, every person can see an opportunity and that it's not too late for anyone because um, therefore we're distributing the labor equally and that it's not um, being directed by a certain subset of people or being too much for some of the people that have been carrying this work for a long time. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Everybody has a responsibility and 
Um, so given your position and, and knowledge within the climate and indigenous rights space, I'd love to jump into our um, topic for today, um, which is that of uh, talking about the events taking place on the West Coast with respect to um, the Wet'suwet'en. So for everyone listening today, I'm wondering if you could tell us who um, the Wet'suwet'en peoples are, where um, is their land colonially located within so-called Canada, and what is happening with respect to Wet'suwet'en land? Yeah, so the Wet'suwet'en people are Indigenous to a, a large territory that's located in the north central of what is colonial known as British Columbia. It's about um, a few hours west of what is colonial known as Prince George. And the Wet'suwet'en land is about 22,000 kilometers of land. And uh, the territory is divided up by, by five clans and 13 house groups. And in most of what is colonially known as British Columbia, uh, the land was never ceded, so it was never signed away by treaty, it was never conquered by war, and therefore the Wet'suwet'en people have their own governance structure and laws that actually predate any colonial laws. So the Wet'suwet'en people use a traditional governance system called Batlets, which is a feast hall. And so all of their, their clown, clans and house groups um, are responsible for different portions of the territory. And they represent the people that make up the house clan. And so they use their ballot system to make any decisions about the land. So right now there is a, a pipeline proposed um, to go through Wet'suwet'en territory that has been approved by some of the um, Indian Act chief and councils. So the Wet'suwet'en people have their own traditional governance system, but through the Indian Act, the federal government has created an additional governance system that uses a chief and council structure um, to make decisions. Um, this is following following an era where indigenous people used to not be able to make any decisions for their land they were actually assigned an indian agent that would be able to make all decisions through the territory that was replaced by the indian act system in which um, we elect a chief in council to make decisions for only reserved land and so now um, within the Wet'suwet'en context, we have the hereditary chief system that uses the traditional governance of Batlats to make decisions for the territory as a whole, um, whereas the federal government continues to prop up a chief and council system that was meant to uh, be ineffective, that was meant to cause community divisions, and that is actually only supposed to be responsible for federal reserve land. And um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for... Um laying that out for us and introducing us to um, the Wet'suwet'en peoples. Um, in relation to the events that are currently taking place, um, what is happening with respect to Indigenous rights, but also with respect to the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline? And for reference, um, Coastal Gaslink Pipeline will also be referred to CGL throughout our podcast. So if you hear that acronym, you know that we're talking about the pipeline. Yeah, and I guess I should also explain um, my relationship to Wet'suwet'en people. So um, I identify as Dakaf, which is a relative to the Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, so Wet'suwet'en 
people are, I, I refer to them as my relatives. My, my great grandmother on my matrilineal side was born in Whitsett, which is a village located in Wet'suwet'en territory. Um, their family then settled in the village of Stella, where I'm speaking to you from now. So I identify with being Stella 10, but do have um, relatives that are a part of Wet'suwet'en territory. So when I'm speaking to them, just want to make clear that I'm not speaking as a Wet'suwet'en person, but as a relative to the Wet'suwet'en people. So as I mentioned before, the Wet'suwet'en people um, are the rights holder to the unceded territories that they have occupied since time immemorial. The Wet'suwet'en house chiefs have full jurisdiction over their lands and must be provided with free prior and informed consent before any extraction projects can be forced through the territory. These rights are our rights as sovereign Indigenous people that have been affirmed by the United Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People and also affirmed by a Supreme Court case in 1997, which was Dalgamuk versus British Columbia, which um, ruled that the Wet'suwet'en people as represented by their hereditary leaders had not given up the rights and titles to the 22,000 square kilometers located in Northern so-called British Columbia. So that, that Supreme Court decision affirmed that the traditional governance system had never been exterminated and that the hereditary chiefs still have the right to uphold that system on their lands. The United Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People also states that Indigenous people have the right to own, to use, to develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources that they possess by reason of traditional ownership or other traditional occupation or use as those which they have otherwise acquired, and also that Indigenous people shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. So what we have seen in the, the recent years is coastal gassing pipeline which is a proposed pipeline that will carry fracked gas um, all the way to the northeastern British Columbia and then exported for Asian markets. Um, this pipeline has been trying to force construction through the territory without consent of the hereditary house leaders. So for the past three years, uh, the RCMP have actually been raiding the Wet'suwet'en territory in an attempt to remove the Wet'suwet'en people that are occupying their lands and make way for the construction of the coastal gas link pipeline. The, the latest raid took place just a month ago uh, in November 2021, and the RCMP used excessive force to arrest uh, 30 people, including Wet'suwet'en leaders, elders, and also Canadian media journalists. They, they removed Indigenous people at gunpoint on behalf of the coastal gas link pipeline. Yeah, so they, they took extreme measures to, to remove Wet'suwet'en people from their ancestral lands. They have also been using extreme fear tactics and threats of violence on the daily. Um, they have been surveilling Wet'suwet'en people who are living on their own land using helicopters and drones. They have threatened Wet'suwet'en people with attack dogs, pointed guns at them, chainsawed some of their structures, and are even putting Coastal Gas Link employees at risk and using them as political pawns to, um, for profit. They're 
doing an, an attempt uh, to break the spirit of the Wet'suwet'en people that have every right to access their land and are, are fulfilling an, an ongoing legacy of colonial violence against Wet'suwet'en people. Absolutely. Thank you for breaking that that down for us. It would be pretty hard to ignore what has been happening right now on the West Coast based on everything popping up on the news and everything popping up on Twitter. Um, it's it's horrifying to um, see what's what's happening, um, but it's even more horrifying that this is being done at the hands of the so-called Canadian um, state, considering that Canada likes to present itself as this polite and and people loving country. Um, and we know that what is currently happening in northern BC has been happening for hundreds of years since the start of European colonization and so-called Canada. And with the intense violence and arrests that we see breaking out on Wasowatin land at the hands of the militarized RCMP, um, you know, these orders coming from the Canadian government are to defend the pipeline at all costs, despite, you know, people's lives being on the line, but not only people's lives, um, you know, indige uh, Indigenous people's um, right to, um, right to their land. And uh, despite the floods going on in BC right now as well. So with that all being said, how are the events taking place on Wet'suwet'en land a part of a larger pattern of ongoing colonization, displacement, and genocide of Indigenous peoples in this country. Yeah, as, as you said, this has been going on for hundreds of years, and right now the colonial government has given direction to the RCMP to protect the pipeline at all costs. And this is basically how Canada has been operating since its inception. I like to refer to Canada itself as a resource corporation because that's actually how they, they operate. Um, since um, Canada first came upon these lands, uh, they have have claimed that they have discovered these lands knowing full well that Indigenous people have been occupying it since time immemorial. And they quickly realized that Indigenous people have such a close relationship to the land itself and also really close, closely tied uh, community bonds. And so from inception, the Canadian state has seen Indigenous people as a threat to resource extraction and know that they would never be able to occupy these lands and to profit off these resources without displacing, exterminating, or assimilating Indigenous people. So this has been done in numerous ways throughout the history of so-called Canada, uh, first with bringing diseases to many Indigenous nations, uh, forcing Indigenous people onto land, so-called reserves, and using very, very violent tactics to keep them there, um, forced starvation, and then, of course, eventually partnering with the, the Catholic institutions to set up residential schools that were designed to break the spirit of Indigenous people, um, to kill them and erase any language or culture. So once Indigenous people were placed onto reserves, the RCMP were instructed to remove Indigenous children from their homes and place them into these residential schools. And like I said before, Indigenous people were known to have such close family ties and close, close community ties. The government knew that 
removing children from the home would, would break those and therefore make indigenous populations easier to control, assimilate, or exterminate. So now, in, in respect to what's happening in Wet'suwet'en, we're seeing a pattern of, of past violence being replicated where indigenous people living peacefully on their lands are being violently arrested or assaulted by the RCMP body that was responsible for taking children from the home and placing them in the residential schools. Um, they still see Indigenous people living on lands as a threat to resource extraction. Um, they are still using division tactics to create community infighting and therefore break community and family bonds and attempt to make Indigenous populations easier to control to make way for resource extraction. With all of this being said, um, I think the general population would like to believe that this national myth of Canada, as I said, being this polite and, and people-loving society, and you talk about this in your article in the National Observer, which we'll definitely link in the show notes because it's an incredibly important read for everybody, um, when in reality, um, as you've just uh, so clearly laid out the underbelly of our countries is really rooted in nefarious racism, white supremacy, and, and colonial violence at the hands of the militarized Canadian state. So I'm wondering if you could bust this myth for us even further um, in relation to so-called Canada and give a few definitions for our listeners. Um, the first one being racial capitalism, the second one being colonial violence, and the third one being imperialism um, with relation to um, the events surrounding uh, Wet'suwet'en. The, the interesting thing about, about laws and histories is it's really just contingent on what people agree to be true. So Canada has told a story of brave settlers upon a land that was unoccupied and pulling themselves up by the bootstraps to, to build a prosperous country that we all benefit today. But Indigenous people have known that the, the inception of Canada of Indigenous lives and continues to create violence against Indigenous people. So when we talk about racial capitalism, Capitalism is, is defined as an economic system that's based on the private ownership of the means of production and of profit. Capitalism is contingent on profit at all costs. It's also contingent on exponential growth, although we live on a planet with finite resources and unlimited growth is not possible. And so racial capitalism, to me, is an acknowledgement that Racism is at the heart of this economic structure. I said in my article that the forces we fight against, and by that I meant the corporate elite, have been weaponizing race as a political wedge that allows them to continue to hold power while our natural systems and labor are exploited. And this, of course, comes at the cost of mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Racism is at the core of our extractive, exploitive, and inequitable economic system, which, of course, is, is incompatible with a more just or clean energy future that we hope to build. 
these systems will create economic disparities in racialized communities that will inhibit community members from fighting for social change or fighting for justice. It will strip them of the resources needed to survive climate disasters or to fight back against the corporate elite. The colonial violence, again, is a description of the violent way Canada treated Indigenous people in order to set up the colonies that we now call Canada and the ongoing ways they perpetuate that, whether it be from the violence against frontline Indigenous people like we're seeing in Wet'suwet'en, um, but also the enforced poverty in Indigenous communities, the disproportional rates of Indigenous people in, in prisons, and imperialism is defined as, as a state policy practice or advocacy of extending power and dominion. So we can we can look back and see how, how Canada in the past has, has imposed imperialism on the lands that we now occupy. But as it becomes a bit more mainstream to understand the injustices done to Indigenous people through things like residential Canada continues to, to display imperialism to racialized communities overseas. So, for example, Canada participated in the kidnapping and expulsion of Haiti's elected head of state. Uh, Canada continued to fight in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan as an imperial measure. And today, Canada continues to operate mining companies in Latin America and, and to perpetuate the same harm that was done to indigenous peoples on these lands, um, to the indigenous people of Latin America. So all of this tells a different story than most of us were taught in school. Um, the country that is known for being polite and, and, and um, passive is actually um, has a really violent history of displacing any people that would get in the way of resource extracting and making money. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for um, busting that myth. I, I think even within the things that you just said, I learned so much and um, it really, really makes me angry at what I was taught in schools Um because what we're taught is just so different than the reality of um, the true history of Canada, so to speak. Um, so yes, thank you for sharing. Um, when it comes to the pipeline specifically and the different perspectives and narratives around Wet'suwet'en and the CGL pipeline, you yourself talk about how your community in Northern BC is on paper a supporter of the coastal gas link pipeline. And it's very easy for the narrative around the pipeline to be weaved in such a way that paints the development of this pipeline as a reconciliation initiative by the government of Canada. And you share on Twitter, any Indigenous support for oil and gas projects are a result of weaponizing state manufacture poverty to create division and desperation in our communities. The government is using us like bargaining chips to placate oil and gas executives and calling it partnership and consent. And so why is it that some Indigenous groups support the pipeline, but what information, information excuse me, is, is missing from this narrative? Yeah, I think... There's a tendency to look at the Indigenous communities that are on paper supporting the project 
as as the same way we would a settler corporation supporting a project or a settler government and that they're just greedy and don't care about our futures and are looking to make a profit at all costs when in reality communities aren't signing on to pipeline agreements in hopes to make a, a, a profit and economic prosperity it's really just to survive the state manufactured poverty that they're under so as you mentioned, my community is one on paper that is a supporter of the coastal gas link pipeline. And that is because I'm from a very tiny community that has really borne the effects of, of colonization since then um, to a point where a lot of us are not familiar with our cultural practices. Our language is in, in um, our, our language is near extinction. We don't have the same knowledge of our traditional governance systems and hereditary chiefs that the Wet'suwet'en people are holding on to. And so because of that, we rely on the forest chief and council system to make decisions on behalf of the people. But because the chief and council system was designed to be dysfunctional, it was designed to be patriarchal when we we're a matrilineal society, um, and it was designed to be easily coerced by corporations and the government. So because of that, corporations, it's really easy for them to do community consultations that check a box and are not done in a culturally sensitive or traditional way. And to get sign off from um, the Indian Act chief and council bans and therefore appear on paper as community consent. The, the interesting thing about um, the myth of Canada and how settler Canadians are taught to view Indigenous people is that there is a myth that Indigenous people um, are reliant on taxpayer money and that settler Canadians are actually responsible for, for paying handouts that are given to Indigenous people, when in reality, um, there is something called the Indian Trust Fund, which is managed by the federal government. Um, the government collects the, um, the royalties and revenues that have come from natural resource development and also from the sale or lease of, of lands that weren't theirs to sell or lease. And they now have this trust fund that is actually billions and billions of dollars worth. And they've used this money for agricultural implementations, even things like salaries for teachers, capital projects, um, setting up things like canals or universities and settler Canada. But Indigenous people themselves don't have access or control over this money and are left feeling interdependent on the federal government for any resources. So as what I'm trying to paint a picture of is um, a manufactured poverty, like I said in my tweet, that is um, has not only been caused by the Canadian government, um, but the Canadian government continues to keep can, uh, Indigenous populations in poverty so that there is a level of desperation when it comes to receiving funds for things like culture and language, when it comes to receiving things like jobs so people can get out, go out and work for their family. So it was really easy for Coastal Gas Link to do consultations with community um, where they have a full-time staff person who dedicates all their time to meeting with Indigenous communities and proposing a 
multi-million agreements that the communities then use just to survive. And the reason I, I talk about this is because as much as I would like the coastal gas link pipeline to be canceled, because as someone who has extensive knowledge of climate change and what the threat means, and, and, and doing so, I know that we cannot afford to be building any new pipeline infrastructure. Um, I'm also concerned about the, the lack of alternatives or solutions for my community if that were to be canceled. And that comes from a, a, a history of, of the Canadian government using state factor manu state manufactured poverty to control Indigenous people, but also the lack of awareness from the environmental community of, of what the reality is of living in an Indigenous community. And in doing so, um, I would say the environmental movement or leftist movements um, have not engaged with alternatives or solutions and have not engaged with um, what it would look like for the, the federal government to release some of that money from the Indian Trust Fund and give cash back to the sovereign Indigenous people. Um, you know, Canada has been making billions of dollars on, on resources that we have been stewarding for millions and millions of years and have not reaped the benefit of. So as we continue to, to advocate for the removal of RCMP off what so it's in lands and to advocate for, um, you know, investors like RBC to stop investing in fossil fuel projects and for no new fossil fuel infrastructure to be built, we need to uh, simultaneously be urging the government to pay reparations for the harm they have done for Indigenous communities and from the money they have made off of resources that does not belong to their to lands that they own. Um, because if as long as um, Indigenous communities are in, are in poverty, they are vulnerable to corporations exploiting their fears and their desperation um, and getting easy agreements. Whereas I really truly believe that if the government were to pay back what is owed to Indigenous people, there would be no Indigenous communities that would say yes to any resource extraction. And that would, and I truly believe that all Indigenous communities really want to preserve these lands that they hold for future generations but not all of them are able to do so because of the state manufactory, state manufactured poverty that they have been living in for hundreds of years. With respect to everything that you were just saying, what um, sort of changes um, economically, politically, socially, and, and culturally um, need to happen? Um, what sort of wake up call do you want to send to people listening right now, especially to people, um, environmental leaders and people within the environmental space and, and youth within the environmental space with respect to human rights and climate change, but also with respect to the beliefs and values and perspectives that must be challenged and rejected in order to see the changes that need to be made? Yeah, we're just at a, a point where we can no longer ignore the truth of, of Canadian history. And so all people that occupy lands in so-called Canada have the responsibility to learn about the true history and how Canada has made claims to the, the lands that they claim to occupy. 
And in doing so, it'll be very clearly revealed that Canada has no claims and no rights to these lands and that all Indigenous people across Canada are, are sovereign either through um, living on unceded lands or sovereign as, uh, as people that have agreed to nation-to-nation treaties with settlers that Canada has failed to uphold. So the most important thing is for Indigenous people as sovereign people to be recognized as nations as they have always been, um, which would mean Canada to, to, um, rep- to which would require Canada to, to pay reparations for the resources they have stolen and the harms they have inflicted on Indigenous communities um, so that um, impoverished nations are not economically dependent on um, the Canadian government that has no claim to the land. For the environmental movement, we will never ever win without Indigenous people having the sovereign rights to their land. As I said, the system as it stands, it's really easy to manipulate in order to make way for resource extraction. And that will never stop until Indigenous people and settler allies say no more. And to do so, we need to continue to to urge international bodies to look at the infringements of human rights that Canada has continued to perpetuate and to hold them accountable for what they have done and continue to do to Indigenous people. You know, the environmental movement has, has typically been focused on the conservation of, of lands or pristine lands untouched by people, but Indigenous people have realized since the beginning that uh, we are not masters of nature, we are part of nature and we're interdependent on one another. And so the environmental movement has a lot to learn from from peoples that have modeled what it looks like to be interdependent with nature and to to live in in harmony with nature. And also when when we think about the world we want to create, it's important to realize that we're not starting from scratch and that indigenous people do have traditional governance systems like the Wet'suwet'en continue to practice that are, are based on community care, that are based on care for the land and care for one another and are based on mutual aid. You know, these areas of, of what the northern part of so-called BC, where I'm located in the Wet'suwet'en are located, it's it's rough winters here. Um, it's dangerous terrain. And we survived by looking after one another. And it was said to be told that that you would know how wealthy um, a, a clan was based on their abundance of resources. And we never took too much from that. And we always shared with one another and made sure people were cared for. And I think that is what, what all people want to experience is, is a future where they feel cared for and safe and, and know that they will have um, land and nature and rivers and salmon to be able to show their grandchildren. So. It's all really dependent on building a strong relationship with the Indigenous peoples whose land you occupy on and continue to advocate for them, for the government to return the land to them, to urge them to repair, pay reparations for for the money they have have made um, 
based off of our displacement and suffering. And in doing so, we set a really strong foundation to to build a clean energy future and to to build a future where um, we're all cared for and looked after. Absolutely. I would love to know what can people do at this moment to um, support uh, the efforts um, by uh, the Wet'suwet'en and other uh, First Nations groups in Canada? And what uh, are there any top accounts or organizations to follow or support? And do you have any further book recommendations or podcasts to listen to or um, yeah, other, other courses to take where people can, can continue to learn more and just expand their knowledge um, about around the true history of Canada? Yes, there's so many good resources out there. And um, I will try to, to name some succinctly here. Um, the biggest thing is if it's within your means uh, to monetarily support Indigenous people who are protecting the places we love. Um, if you were to look up the Wet'suwet'en Support Toolkit, it'll point you in the direction of some really great fundraising efforts that are happening right now, as well as some campaigns that are happening. Um, one of them is targeted at RBC who is a major investor in fossil fuel projects right now. They have invested over $200 billion in fossil fuels, including the coastal gas sink pipeline. So if you are a user of RBC uh, or just want to, to hold them accountable, there's resources for you to do so. Um, we need to continue to write our, our government representatives and urge them to, to call off the RCMP from forcibly removing Indigenous people from their lands and territories, and, and to know that the government has um, the ability to revoke the permits for Coastal Gas Link as well as to call off the RCMP. And so we need to call our representatives and continue to urge them to do the right thing. Uh, as far as books, I would definitely recommend reading An Unsettling Canada on the Reconciliation Manifesto by Arthur Manuel. I think he really breaks down some of the elements I talked about, about unveiling the myth of Canada in a way that's really easy for people to understand, to learn more about um, how the Liberal government has been lying about reconciliation and, and using Indigenous people as pawns for, for their political power. I'd recommend reading The Trudeau Formula by Martin Lucas. Um, the University of Alberta also offers a free Indigenous studies course that will help you learn about the true history of so-called Canada and how to support Indigenous nations that are struggling to um, learn more about what's happening on Wet'suwet'en directly, I'd recommend following the Get It M checkpoint account, which is yinta underscore access on Instagram, as well as the work of the, the journalists that have been covering the front line. So that includes Amber Bracken from the Narwhal, um, Michael Toledando, and um, Indigenous journalist Brandy Morin, who have been doing such good work and have um, even paid the repercussions of being unjustly arrested by the RCMP. Um, yeah, we can, we continue to, to learn about um, how the RCMP continues to protect corporate interests over people and calling for the defunding of police and reinvestment in, in community resources. And um, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Absolutely. All of those books sound amazing. I'm going to check them out after, after we hang out, then I'm going to look into that free course that you mentioned as well too. Um, so before we close off this episode, um, I just want to talk about centering joy. This is something that you uh, talk about on your Twitter. And I'd love to just know recently, how have you been centering joy um, amidst everything going on in the world? How are you centering joy um, amidst uh this, this time of winter, this time of rest and renewal, um, as it's known to be. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah. I'm always happy to talk about joy. Uh, joy is an important piece of, of climate work to me. Uh, it means connecting with the places we're trying to connect. So I, I try to get outside as much as possible right now. I've been going on daily walks with my mom, even if it's minus 20 degrees, I get out there and, and remember what it means to, to exist on these lands, you know, with the climate emergency, there is so much urgency. And I always say urgency does not feel great in my body. I hate feeling if I'm late to something, I hate if I have to like last minute pack. And so with the climate emergency, I try to find a way to communicate um, the seriousness of it, but encourage people to, to reject urgency a little bit. You know, we come from a long line of people that have survived uh, against all odds and have won fights that are unimaginable to me. And so just know that um, you are not the only one taking up this work. There's Ezra with you. If you need to step back, there are people that are step, stepping forward. So um, today was actually my last day working before I have three days off. And I am holding those boundaries hard. I will be logging off for a while and just focusing on all of the slow activities that help me reject urgency a little bit. So I have a, a big stack of books I'm excited to read a puzzle I have picked out that I'm excited to do and even some, some crocheting that I'm going to try out for the first time so I'm just trying to do everything everything slowly um, to uh, focus some joy rest and ease in my life Oh, that was so beautiful. I hope the crocheting goes well. <laughs> I'm actually wearing a scarf right now that my partner crocheted for me and it's so cozy and it's so nice when you can uh, like have something handmade either by like somebody you love or even by yourself and to see like your work right in front of you. It's such a special feeling. So I, I hope that goes well for you. <laughs> <laughs> So before we close off, um, I'd love to just know how can people find you online and support your work? And do you have any upcoming projects or events that you want to shout out um, to our listeners? Yeah, I can be found online at Janelle LaPointe on both Instagram and Twitter. Um, as you've mentioned, Twitter is kind of my my, my hot spot for, for putting out all those hot takes and, and sharing my thoughts on issues such as what's happening on Wet'suwet'en. And because I'm so focused on, on rest and ease right now, I actually don't have any um, events or projects that are upcoming, which actually feels pretty exciting. <laughs> uh, but I, I do have some, some things that I can't talk about yet that will be announced later in 2022. And in the meantime, I'm just really focused on connecting with people 
who are interested in, in picking up some of this work, especially for, for new people that um, are just starting to get their, their feet wet or interest peaked and not sure what to do. Um, I would love to connect on Instagram or Twitter and, and um, learn more about your experience and how I can help. Thank you for so much for saying that. I'm glad that we could be one of those places, like one of those places where we could learn more. Like I'm just, I was so grateful when you responded to our message because I just really wanted you to be able to come on and talk about these things to our listeners. But I also like selfishly wanted to have the opportunity to talk to you because I've been following your thoughts on Twitter and I'm just like, so in, in awe of you and, and your words. And so, yeah, with all of that being said, just thank you so much for being here. We're so grateful. Um, I'm so excited to uh, share this episode with our community and with our listeners. I'm going to like send it off to all my friends and be like, you have to listen to this. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, I just can't thank you enough for your time today. So thank you, Janelle. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited and, um, really respect the, the work that you both are doing to, to get some voices out there. And in our language, we say snachalia and an elder once explained it, that it means, uh, thank you with my spirit for your spirit. So snachalia for, for hosting me today. Thank you, Janelle. This episode of the Sierra Youth Podcast was produced by Aviva Lassard. Our editor is Justine Van Dyke. Graphic design by Zaria Levy. Social media support by Abby Gagnon. The rest of our team includes Brenna kagawa Byzantine, Emily Marcom, Jackie Layton, Jessica Cloutier, Sean Trainer, and me, Michaela Yanni. We are the youth chapter of the Sierra Club of Canada, a national and grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting our environment our communities, and our common futures. We are a community-powered show and need your direct support to continue empowering young people to learn more about topics often sidelined by the mainstream media. So if you value our conversations and the guests we learn from, you can support us on Patreon. You can follow the link in our show notes to contribute, and just saying, there might be a few show extras for our Patreons. Other ways of supporting us include subscribing to our feed and leaving a review. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll see you next time.